0: Welcome to Iron Matters, the podcast series brought to you by Haemochromatosis Australia. In this episode, we're talking about haemochromatosis and other iron disorders with Professor Sandrine Pasricha, who's a haematologist at Royal Melbourne Hospital and a scientist at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research. Hello, Dr. Pasricha. Hi. Please tell us a little about yourself, your career, and your areas of particular clinical and research interest. Well
1: sure, so I'm a haematologist. I look after patients who have diseases of the blood. My particular interest is in patients with diseases uh, affecting the red blood cells. Uh, for example, who have anemia or disorders in how their red blood cells work. And also in patients who have disorders of iron overload, either iron deficiency or iron overload. I also do a lot of research around those diseases, particularly iron deficiency, where I work on a number of large randomised control trials overseas in Malawi, in Africa and also in Bangladesh. And as well as that, I also lead a lab where we do fundamental experiments trying to discover the basic principles of how iron is regulated in our bodies and how red blood cells are made.
0: It sounds like interesting work. Your research studies hepcidin, which controls iron homeostasis specifically in relation to anaemia, a problem that many suffer. Is hepcidin also a factor in patients with problems caused by hereditary haemochromatosis or too much iron?
1: Yes, so hepcidin is the key regulator of iron in all states and it's critical in both iron overload states as well as other conditions affecting iron metabolism. Hemochromatosis, at the end of the day, is a disease where the body can't make enough hepcidin and therefore absorbs too much iron. Shall I tell you a little bit about how hepcidin works? I like to think of hepcidin in some ways as insulin is to glucose, hepcidin is to iron. When we eat some iron, either through an iron tablet or through a meal containing lots of iron, our livers sense that increase in iron, make more hepcidin, and that signals to the gut to reduce the amount of iron we now absorb. If a patient is iron deficient, they stop making hepcidin and they can absorb more iron. In patients with hemochromatosis, they missense the amount of iron they have in their body and that causes their hepcidins to be a little bit lower than they ought to be and so they keep absorbing iron and ultimately they become iron overloaded. So yes, hepcidin is really important in our understanding of haemochromatosis.
0: So your specialty really is anemia. What can you tell us about the prevalence of anemia in Australia?
1: Anemia is common in Australia. Around about 4% of Australians are anemic Uh, It's more common in women, where it's about 6%, than in men, where it's about 2%. It's important, though, to note that anaemia is more common in certain populations, particularly in Australia among the elderly, where it can reach above 16% in people who are older than 60 or 70 years old. It's also common in groups belonging to marginalised populations, so poorer people, uh, recent migrants or refugees, and among our Indigenous populations.
0: What are some of the causes of anemia? What proportion of anemia is related to iron deficiency in Australia?
1: The most common cause of anemia is iron deficiency, and that's where there's not enough iron in the bone marrow to provide iron for the production of haemoglobin to make enough red cells, and thus uh, patients with iron deficiency are at risk of becoming anemic. But it's really important to distinguish between anemia and iron deficiency because they're two related but distinct conditions. Patients can become iron deficient and not have anemia and patients can be anemic and not have iron deficiency and the symptoms the diagnosis and the further investigation and treatment depends on making these distinctions so anemia can have many causes it can be due to genetic conditions that affect the production of the red blood cell or the hemoglobin within the red blood cell it can be due to conditions that cause red blood cells to break down more quickly than they ought to It can be due to inflammation, which inhibits the red cell production by keeping iron away from the bone marrow or even impairing the actual production of red blood cells and the function of the stem cells in the bone marrow. So there's many causes of anemia and they all need to be teased apart before we start our treatment.
0: So what sort of symptoms would a person with anemia typically have?
1: It really depends on the patient, and we have to really consider the individual patient. Classically, a patient with anemia will be fatigued, lethargic, often short of breath when they're walking or on exertion. Patients with anemia because of iron deficiency have some extra manifestations. A couple of really interesting ones are that they often present with restless leg syndrome, which is where they have uncontrollable moving of their legs whilst they're trying to sleep. And a really fascinating manifestation is a condition called PICA, where patients find they have a compulsive urge to eat foods that really don't make any sense. For example, eating soil or large amounts of ice. I had a patient just the other week who, when she became iron deficient, would like to eat dried packet noodles. Other manifestations of anemia depend on the underlying medical condition that the patient might have. So patients who are a bit older who might have ischemic heart disease are more likely to develop angina when they become anemic. Tell us then how is anemia treated? So it really comes down to the underlying cause. A patient with iron deficiency should be treated of course with iron treatment and that can be given either as oral iron supplements or um, now uh, there are several drugs available to enable rapid replacement of iron using intravenous approaches. Oral iron can be purchased over the counter or through a prescription. And what has really come through in the last few years is that the way we used to treat iron deficiency was to give really high doses of oral iron. So maybe two or three doses a day of oral iron over a period of time. What's important to realize is that patients don't always tolerate that very well. It can cause gastrointestinal side effects in particular. So abdominal pain, nausea, constipation or diarrhea. And a lot of patients stop taking the iron when those symptoms appear. So what we're really starting to realise now is you don't have to give that iron at such a high dose. You could suggest to the patient, especially if they've just got mild iron deficiency or very mild anaemia, that they could just take a dose every second day. And it might take them a bit longer to get their iron stores back up, but they might tolerate that better and ultimately there'll be a better result. For patients with other causes of anaemia, it really depends on the cause and it's hard to be directive without knowing the cause. Very severe cases of anaemia, of course, may require blood transfusion, and then it really depends whether the patient might have, for example, increased red blood cell breakdown, hemolytic anaemia, in which case we might have to treat the patient with certain therapies against the cause of that, or it might be related to hemoglobinopathies, in which case the very specific treatments that might be necessary there.
0: So if we introduce hemochromatosis into the equation, how would symptoms vary for someone with haemochromatosis as opposed to someone with anemia?
1: So a lot of patients tell me that they feel a bit fatigued with haemochromatosis and that the venous sections, the removal of blood, actually makes them feel a little bit fresher and a little bit brighter. So in some way those symptoms can overlap with patients with anemia. However, ultimately what I think is that if, if if a doctor meets a patient who is letting them know they're feeling not quite right, they're feeling fatigued, they're lethargic, they should order a blood count... Uh, which would include a haemoglobin, and iron studies. And that'll pick up both if they do have anaemia and if they have hemochromatosis all at once.
0: Are there cases when a person with hemochromatosis then might also have anaemia?
1: It can happen particularly some patients when they're having venous sections. uh, If those venous sections are happening very close together, sometimes we take off too many red cells and the patient's hemoglobin might dip below um, the threshold. And in those cases, it might be sensible just to delay the next venous section and allow the hemoglobin to recover. There are other causes of iron overload which can be associated with anemia, however. As I mentioned before, hemochromatosis occurs because the hepcidin is a little bit too low and it allows too much iron to be absorbed A lot of patients with some genetic causes of anemia actually develop a very similar pathway to increased iron absorption particularly patients with a condition called thalassemia. In those patients, the red cells are produced inefficiently and that signals to the liver to not produce enough hepcidin. And that results in chronic excess iron absorption. So patients with some forms of thalassemia can actually present similar to hemochromatosis with the same effects in the liver and in the endocrine organs, in the heart and elsewhere. So we do actually see iron overload in some patients with anemia as well.
0: So then how is anemia diagnosed and treated? So
1: when a patient has a blood count, uh, the the very first number that appears on most reports is the haemoglobin concentration. And we define anemia as a haemoglobin concentration that is inadequate for carriage of oxygen around the body. So most laboratories will provide a number below which a patient would be considered anemic. And that's how we diagnose anemia.
0: Very straightforward. What if someone with anemia is prescribed iron supplements yet their anemia is not related to iron deficiency? Is there any chance of inducing iron overload? Or should ferritin transferrin saturation levels be tested before recommending supplements?
1: I think all adult patients should have both a haemoglobin and the rest of a full blood count done along with iron studies and as you mentioned ferritin and transferrin saturation to ensure that the anemia is in fact due to iron deficiency before uh, commencing iron therapy. The exception might be in young kids in babies where it's pretty hard to get blood from a baby and uh, in that case maybe you could just do a trial of iron therapy first and see if you can improve the haemoglobin. One thing that's tricky is that you usually need a different blood tube to measure the haemoglobin to measuring the iron studies. And that causes a bit of a constraint around just measuring both one after the other if you didn't already know the result of the first. Mm. And that often means patients have to come back for the second blood test, which is obviously inconvenient for the patient.
0: Is there anything else you think GPs should know about iron disorders?
1: I think it's important for GPs to recognise that patients with iron deficiency can present in many ways, and that they can have symptoms even if they're not anaemic. What's also important is that when a patient is iron deficient, it's crucial to try to discover why they're iron deficient. What is the underlying cause behind that iron deficiency? Is it that they're not eating enough iron? Is their nutritional iron inadequate? Is it that there's something wrong with their intestines such that they're not absorbing the iron properly? An important issue here is now we've realised is celiac disease, An undiagnosed celiac disease is a common manifestation in iron deficiency but most importantly patients who have um, iron deficiency we need to think about whether they're losing blood because just as in hemochromatosis when you venesection to remove iron if a person is losing blood they'll actually lose iron of course and they could become iron deficient so we always have a flashing red light when we think about a patient with iron deficiency as to where they're losing blood. If it's a woman who's still undergoing menstruation, then that's the most likely cause, and we need to consider that. But if it's a male uh, or a postmenopausal woman, then it's critical to consider whether there's a condition causing blood loss that might even be in the colon or in the intestine. And we usually refer these patients to gastroenterologists to consider endoscopy. So, really, just to summarize, iron disorders either iron deficiency or iron overload, can touch on all clinical domains, cardiology, respiratory symptoms, neurocognitive symptoms. And so it's always important to have a high index of suspicion for these conditions. They're easily tested for. Uh, it's just a haemoglobin and some iron studies. It's not too expensive to screen for them. And I think that really best practice would be to have a high index of suspicion and for test for these conditions and then help us at hand to interpret the results and to look after the patients.
0: Mm. That's interesting and, and great information for GPs. Dr. Sandraine Pasricha, thank you very much for speaking with us today about haematology and haemochromatosis. My pleasure. To listen to more podcasts in this series, subscribe to Iron Matters in your podcast app or find us at www.ha.org.au slash iron matters.